So um, my conversation with God the last few weeks in preparation for today went something like this. Uh, I started praying a few weeks ago. Okay, God, I know January 21st is New Arrivals Day, and I'm in a series called Wire for Connections. So what do we do with this day? And I sensed God. I didn't hear his audible voice, but our conversation basically went like God. I sensed him asking, okay, Josh, who is the day for? And my response was basically, uh, God, I was taught at a young age to answer every question with Jesus. It's a day for Jesus, right? Um, and I sense, so of course this day is for God. And that was how my prayer life began. Like, how do we, how do we honor this day to where God is the one who receives all the glory? Because all creation comes from God. But I sense God ask again, okay, look, I, I know this day is for me, but who is this day for? And my response was, okay, uh, it's for the seven who we're blessing, the six newborns and David, who's like the coolest dude at our church. It's it's for them. It's for the seven of them. And And I sense God ask again, who is this day for? And I sense God answer his own question with, this day is for the entire church. And help the church understand that. All right, so if you're a guest here or you haven't been a Sycamore gear view very long, uh, there are times throughout the year where we have days like this where we honor newborn babies who have been born into our church family or adoptions that have happened. There are other days that we celebrate uh, seniors who've graduated from high school. So there are special days where we honor specific families or people or, or groups, but this is a day that's not just for the seven newborn or six newborns and David, because let's face it, six of them aren't going to remember anything that happened today, right? They're not going to be able to tell this story 25 years from now about the blessing that was spoken over them or the gifts that were given or little Davenport who's trying to get center stage over here. Or uh, They're not going to tell any of those stories. It's for the church. It, today is for the parents and who, to let them know that the whole church is around them. It's for the elderly to know that you have so much to give to the younger people in the church. It's for the single women who either aren't married or have no desire to be married. It's for the people who, um, who can't have babies that we're together because we come together through all of our joys and all of our pain to know that, man, we are together as a church and we've got to rally around each other because the church is at its best when we're doing life together, when we're riding or we're dying. It doesn't matter. We're just, we're together on the journey. Uh, I took a job when I was 20 years old where I was a youth intern and a preaching intern at a church in Dallas. So uh, throughout the week, I did a lot with the youth, but on weekends, I would have some preaching responsibility. Maybe occasionally I would do things on Sunday mornings, but I was in charge of preaching a Sunday night worship service. And then they also gave me the responsibility to go to a care center, a nursing home, every other week throughout the summer. So five times I had the responsibility to go to a nursing home and to speak to this group. And I'll be honest, to begin with, I was not excited about it. Uh, I liked speaking to teenagers. I liked speaking to people. I just didn't feel like there would be much fruit that would come from me going to speak at a nursing home. I walked in the room the first day, and all five times I spoke there, well, three times there were 19 people, and it was 19 women. Not a single dude showed up, all right? And then the other two times, it was 20 because one guy showed up. And the first time I walked in, I was like, okay, how do y'all begin? Like, I have a lesson. Do you want me just to jump into it? And they're like, no, we, we start out by singing songs. And they were all holding a hymn book. And I was like, well, who starts the songs? And they were like, whoever's teaching the lesson. <laughs> <Which> is, <laughs> I 
Oh, it's like, okay, I'll give it a shot. But I've, I grew up in churches that were smaller, and, and especially in smaller churches. It doesn't matter who's on stage leading singing. There's always the woman on the second row who's really leading the singing, all right? So, and I would got to start a song, and then she would carry it, and everyone would join in. And I was kind of shocked when I was, when, when the one guy didn't show up, and there's only 19 women, and the, there were still people singing bass, and I could not tell where it was coming from, all right? I mean, it was... <clears throat> And by the end of that, I was just drawn into the heart of God by what these 19 women and occasionally 20 people were teaching me. I grew up in churches that would often go to nursing homes. And we would, maybe the youth group would do devotionals there or our family would go. And I, I can remember there being times I just didn't want to go because a lot of times nursing homes may have a certain smell or sometimes I just didn't know how to engage with the people. But what God has taught me through those experiences about legacy and commitment and loyalty and the stories that these folks had to share began to shape and form my life. There's a story that came out of Seattle, of the Seattle Providence Mount St. Vincent Nursing Home. I know it's a mouthful, all right? It's a nursing home in Seattle, and it's the average resident in this nursing home is 90 years old. A lot of older people, and most of them are in need of assistance to, to get around anywhere. But what's so unique about this nursing home is that five days a week, it's not just 90 and above who are living there. Five days a week, every weekday, there are 125 kids between one and five who descend upon that nursing home for a, a learning day and a time to connect with people outside of their generation. And some of you may be thinking, if I'm ever in a nursing home one day and I look up and I see 125 kids under the age of five coming into this nursing home, I'm going to run for my life. The only problem is in a nursing home, you're probably not going to be able to run for your life, all right? So I don't know what that means, like wheel for your life or, or uh, scoot for your life, all right? Um, it's part of what they call the ILC, Intergenerational Learning Center. And the purpose of this is this. It's to allow kids to learn about acceptance while also being nurtured. And it goes on to explain that this program was designed to counterbalance the loneliness and boredom that so often characterizes life in a nursing facility. And there's been research done, and it wouldn't surprise you some of the results of the research, how there are actual benefits for the older people, and some of these benefits and the results and research shows that there is a decreased loneliness, which I didn't think would come as a surprise, and probably doesn't to you either, but there's also a delayed mental decline in the people in that place. Because many of them have grandkids or great-grandkids or even great-great-grandkids. But maybe those families aren't local. So every day these people have kids climbing up in their lap and they're walking around their chairs. But what they also found is the benefits aren't just for the older people. It's for the younger people. It's for these small children. And, and parents will call this, this center later on in life, decades later, and they'll tell them that, hey, I just wanted you to know what a difference that program made in the life of my kid because for the rest of their childhood when we were in a shopping mall or at church and they saw an older person in a wheelchair, they would be some of the first people who would walk up to them to say hi or introduce themselves. The director goes on to say that the reason they started this program over 25 years ago is they wanted a living, vibrant community to make sure that this was a place where people came to live, not die. Where people came to find out how to live and to continue to live, not to die. So I've shared with you before 
that there's research on church growth. And, and some of this research, it's not that the people producing the research believe in it. It's that some of the research does show that many churches at some point have to make a decision. Are we going to be a church that's 45 and over or 45 and under? And to take the gospel seriously and what Jesus launched at the resurrection, that choice should never have to be made. That the church is at its best when we're bringing people together from all walks of life to learn from each other, to feed off each other. And it's what discipleship means. It's for us to understand that discipleship is maturing in God. And we do not mature for the sake of maturity in itself. We mature for the sake of investment. So you're maturing in God to come to the realization that you have something to give to someone else. And, and we need some more seasoned people in life who are not afraid to take the approach that the Apostle Paul occasionally took when he would say stuff like, follow me as I follow Jesus. Like, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. And it's not Paul saying, hey, I figured it out, so come and let me share with you everything I've learned. It said, hey, in my pursuit of living in everything God wants of me, I want you to come along with me so you can live in everything God wants of you too. Let me just show you a few places in the Psalms, and I want to unpack one Psalm in just a moment. But this is, some, David didn't write all the Psalms, so some of these are from David, and some of them are just the cries of people. But these aren't just people who wrote them. The people of God began to sing them because they believed they were true. Like they wanted to live into the reality. Psalm chapter 71. Verse 17 and 18 says, Since my youth, God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. In Psalm 145.4, it says, One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. You get the sense in Psalm 140, uh, 145 that it's not just one generation telling to the younger generation. It's like generations sharing with each other the deeds of God, the mighty acts of God. In Psalm 45, verse 17, I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. Psalm 89, verse 1, I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. And there are a lot of other psalms like this. But let me go to Psalm 78. If you have your Bibles, open to Psalm 78. And it begins like this. My people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago about the word Shema uh, in the Hebrew language. For Jewish people, Shema was listen up, all right? Like pay attention. Listen with your eyes. Like focus on who it is who is talking. And here you get the sense like this is some like fatherly a motherly psalm where someone's like looking at people in this teaching moment maybe around a campfire around a dinner table and here they are and look my people hear what i gotta say listen to the words of my mouth i will open my mouth with a parable i will utter hidden things things from of old things we have heard and known things our ancestors have told us we're about to pass on to you now here's the deal about psalm 78 if you have your bibles open this is a long psalm one of the longest psalms and it's a psalm of instruction. And any psalm of instruction has someone who is instructing, but it's the responsibility of those who are listening to the psalm to obey or to take heart of what the instruction is. It's an historical psalm, and I'm not going to read this whole psalm. But throughout all of Psalm 78, what, 
what the person does who's writing this, and is they just begin going through all of the deeds of God and what God has done and the rebellion of people and how God continues to have his, salva- um, his, his plan of salvation unfold. And then people rebel, and then here's God who continues to work in the lives of people and in the world. So it's an historical psalm that are going through all the deeds of God. And here's the rest of Psalm, or just a few more verses in Psalm 78. I want to read through verse 8. We will not hide from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children. And then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. They would not be like their ancestors, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. And then the song keeps going. Um, I want people to understand that when it comes to investing in the younger generation, for many of us, we have just a few shots to give them something of substance to live into. Now, for teachers and some of our youth ministers, you have more than a few shots. But for some of us, you, just, you have a few shots to give them something to like really sink their teeth into. And we've got to make sure that what we're serving up to the younger generation is something of substance and value. Because we live in a time where the best story and the best narrative wins. And the narrative, the ultimate narrative that we need the younger generation to hear, it's not about the American dream. The ultimate narrative is not a narrative of that the goal of your life is to graduate from high school or get a college diploma. Though those things can be great. The ultimate narrative is a narrative of the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God, the covenant of God, the greatness of Jesus, the invitation of Jesus is the story they need to hear us say. And all these psalms, and some of you in your life groups, you may unpack some of these verses I've read, maybe a few more later on today. A few of the threads, a few things you see show up over and over again as one, you see the deeds of God show up a lot. The deeds of God that you need to learn to tell and retell what God has done. And they tell it in a way where here's what God has done and we're celebrating that because we still believe it's something that God still does. That we're not just telling you stories about how God acted, we're claiming that how God acted is how God still acts. And another thread you see in a lot of these psalms is the acknowledgement about the rebellion of human beings. In their case, an acknowledgement about the rebellion of their forefathers and their foremothers. And they're not acknowledging it in a way where they're just throwing the old, you know, their great-grandparents and generations back. They're not just throwing them under the bus. They're acknowledging it in a way because we've got to acknowledge some of the rebellion in the history of the world and the history of some of our families. We need to acknowledge the rebellion to name it for what it is so that the next generation doesn't repeat it and bring it back. You tell the deeds of God, you acknowledge rebellion, and you keep telling and retelling the story of God. I think what Jesus wants so many people in the church to know is that you've got to come to a place with God where you are confident in your salvation and where you believe that the Spirit of God working in you is taking you to a point where you have something to give to the world. Now, this may not mean that some of you ever have a stage like what I have right now where I'm speaking in front of hundreds of people. It may not mean that you ever stand up in front of a crowd, but whatever the stage or platform is that God gives you, And it may be at a table or coffee. It may just be one person on a sidewalk talking with a neighbor. Whatever stage God gives you, that we use it to tell the deeds of God somehow in some kind of way. 
there's a book called Reclaiming Conversation. And in this book, this person did a lot of research. You can see the research in the book. And in the book, one thing this woman argues for, one thing she states is that what she has found is that it actually takes seven minutes for a conversation to really begin. All right, now, that means for seven minutes, we can hang around the surface with people talking about the weather or movies or sports or who knows what else, all right? Seven minutes, and about that point, someone either takes a risk or they have the chance to take a risk. Seven minutes is a long time to hang in a conversation, right? Now, some of you just totally skip the seven-minute mark, and you know how to go deep and go deep quick. Some of us, it's, it, we, we run from things like that. Seven minutes before conversation really begins. Now, think about the impact this may have on marriages. Um, if you connect for a few minutes, but you never get to a point where it gets below or further than how was your day. Think about what this means for the relationship between parents and kids, no matter what age they are. Do we have disciplines or we hang in a conversation to where occasionally it can get below the surface? This is one of the greatest principles I've heard of is, and some of you may practice it, but when it comes to a dinner table, it needs to be a time where we come together for conversation where screens and tablets and phones are not allowed so we can actually focus on people. Think about the impact this has, and, and maybe you work off like a seven-minute conversation, or maybe it doesn't, but think about this impact, impact this has when Christians are engaging with other Christians throughout the city, or Christians engaging with non-Christians, or you're engaging with someone from the Muslim community, or um, you're engaging with someone who, who is either invested in, or they have a love for the LGBT community, and there are these relationships that may need to be developed, but are we willing to hang out in the relationship long enough to where it can get below the surface so we can learn who people are, how we can care for people, pray for people. And think about what this means for multi-generational conversations or relationships that when generations come... Do you ever talk with someone outside of your, your age group and it's like you're talking a foreign language? You know what I'm saying? It's like you're, you're both kind of talking English, but you're like no comprende. Like I just don't, I don't get you and you probably don't get me. How do we hang in that long enough for God to do something where he's forming and bonding and strengthening the church through it? Today, for the seven families who are on this stage, for many others out there who are raising families, the church is for you. And the message of the church is that we want to come alongside of your family and come alongside of your children to do everything we can to promote a gospel and to promote and lift up a Jesus in a kind of way that your children will not want to fall. Like we want to prevent them from falling, but we also want to be a church that's preaching a faithful message of Jesus and living a message that is not just preaching a message of trying to prevent a fall. It's, it's, Wanting you to understand there's a God who can help people recover from a fall. Isn't that the only way our children learn how to walk in the world? They fall and we help them up. And they fall again and we help them up. And especially for the six who we bless today with infants, I don't want to go to a place where we're imagining rebellion or evil happening in the lives of your kids or any suffering or pain. But to acknowledge that the gospel that we're living into is a gospel that says, hey, we want to be a church that's trying to prevent people 
from deep forms of pain and evil, but we also want people to know there's a God who specializes. He masters and helps people recover from falls because we're trying to raise up a generation that flies with God, right? Um, I've learned over the last few weeks through stuff I've read, but also just personal experience, like there's no such thing as a nonstop flight from one place in life to another. Like you don't get to the age of one and then there's a nonstop flight to the age of five. You know, there's not a skip middle school to get to high school or skip college to get to a adult life or skip your 40s to get to your 50s. It just doesn't work that way. You've got to go through it. Which is why we want the children in our church and those we bless today We want them to be a generation that discovers what it means to walk with God right where they are. So as a church, we come alongside and we instill principles, convictions. We want to aid the channel passion. But we we need to acknowledge today we don't have the luxury to hold strings or to manipulate the movements of a person or to manipulate the movements of a generation. We can try. But to succeed in manipulation is to fail in cultivating maturity. And it's not what God wants. So we realize today that the call of God in our lives is not just for us to be okay with God. It's to realize that we are okay with God. And because we are in a good place with God and we're confident in who we are as people, we have something to give to someone else. And so we invest. So I want to end with one story. And I just want to set it up by saying I want you to interpret and hear this story from wherever you are in life. So you may be thinking about, I'm going to tell a story about stability, and I want you to think about what this may mean for your own life, and especially for the seven who are on the stage. I want it to be a blessing for you and also a challenge for you. For some of you, you may be in a place in your marriage or in a relationship where you need just a story about stability that can give you either something to confess of or something to cling to. There was a family who renovated their kitchen not too long ago. And as they renovated their kitchen, they totally like all the sheetrock came down. They just, they gutted the whole thing. Maybe some of you have done this before. And they were so excited about what they were going to be able to do with their kitchen. So they had, they had all these ideas and these drawings and these dreams and they gutted it and they were about to start putting stuff together and fixing this thing up. And they brought over a friend of theirs who was a contractor because they wanted him to see the improvement they had made. And he walked into the kitchen and they were expecting him to shake his head and to give a wow. But instead he started shaking his head no. And they knew something was wrong. And he said, you have a lot of beams that are strong and sturdy, but do you see that one beam right in the center? Do you see what's wrong with it? And they couldn't tell. And the thing was... Whoever had built that kitchen had the center beam and it went three-fourths of the way through the kitchen and then it stopped. So what they did is they took another beam to fill in the gap and then they nailed the two beams together thinking it would be sturdy. Mark, that doesn't sound good, does it? And the guy said, does this not look like a problem to you? And they're like, no, it looks, it looks like it's... It looks like a sturdy beam. He said, follow me. And he took them upstairs where they stood in the room above the kitchen. And they got down on the floor and they could see where the floor had begun. It was sagging because of this beam. Because it wasn't sturdy. And here's what can often happen in our lives. Is we form a life. And then we're tempted just to add Jesus onto what we have formed. Thinking that it will be the stability that we need. We form what feels like a sturdy foundation and we could even write Jesus on it. Put a Jesus bumper sticker on it. 
thinking that that makes a sturdy foundation, but it doesn't. Jesus doesn't just fill out the rest of the space. He has to become all of it. So I want to ask the elders and prayer leaders, if you will, go to your place. And this morning what we've done is there, there are going to be elders up front to receive you for prayer. And there are going to be a couple of elders in the back. And whoever the elders are in the back, will you kind of move to the center? And then I've also asked two of our married couples, people I dearly love and that I go to for spiritual encouragement and advice. Phil and Sherry Hart are going to be together right over here to, to my right. And Reggie and I, Lee, are going to be back by that exit sign to my left, kind of in the back over there. And if you're a family, a younger family, a married couple, if you have just a need to go to someone either for a word of blessing or you feel like you need a sturdier foundation in your life and in your marriage, I want to invite you to go to them. They'll be there for a little while. We're going to sing a couple of songs. You have permission to go to one of our tables or write out a prayer request if there's something we can pray over you. I want you to take advantage of some of these places of prayer today. Let's stand together. Let's sing a couple of songs and feel free to move around the room.